and welcome to the first person in the room. I'm your host, Teresa Francesca, and this week we're going to do a solo episode, so nobody, nobody but me. Nobody but me! I've actually recorded two or three different versions of a solo episode um, from very early on, where I was going to focus on the Enneagram. I really just couldn't bring myself to put those up. I recorded it like two extra times afterward, trying to change it. And then even tried to like write something of a script because I fell into this trap because I'm like, I was talking about the Enneagram. So I felt like I had to explain to some extent the Enneagram, which is, that's a trap. Like, no, don't. (laughs) It's tricky to talk about like a thing, you know, I, I, you know, if you've listened to the episode um, where Reese interviews me, which is the episode right before this one. You know, I I have something of a hang up about like things with a capital T, the capital letter. I get really hung up on on that stuff and trying to like explain things well enough so that I can't be criticized for it, which in itself is a trap. You can be criticized for anything at any time for any reason or non-reason. People will just find things. Um, <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about what I've learned about myself through doing this podcast. I started work on this podcast in July, um, actually June. I ordered the microphones, the equipment I needed in June, and then I got very sick, uh, like losing, like didn't have a voice sick. So it was kind of, it kind of sucked to have brand new microphones. I really couldn't test out because I didn't really have a voice. Um, (laughs) Doing this podcast has been for me an exploration of um, my relationship to the public versus private and wanting to share a lot of myself and kind of testing the waters on, on what I actually do want to be out there. I know that this show doesn't really have an audience at the time I'm recording it. It's very possible. It'll just kind of stay a very small thing that only I care about, which is kind of sad, but it's good. It, it, part of that makes me feel like a little safe, like that I'm stepping out vocally and, and putting my voice out there, but without the risk of actually having an audience. When I was four years old, I had this, I had this idea. I had certain ideas about myself. One was that I was a writer or that I would be a writer it wasn't that I wanted to be a writer. It was that almost with a whether or not I like it type of air to it. It was like, oh, I'm just going to be a writer. That's my fate, right? (laughs) And I also felt when I was four that I was not going to be a mother, that I wasn't going to be a parent. The thing I like to tell people is is, uh, what I told my mother, which is I don't want to have kids. I want to have kittens. Um, which ironically, I don't have any cats. Uh, (laughs) And the other thing that I thought whenever I was four or felt about myself is probably more accurate, um, was that I, I would, or that I wanted to be known. I felt I had, I, from a very early age, I had this really acute sense of being hidden, like that my real self was hidden and that the, the shell or the like exterior external persona of Teresa was 
just a distinctly different creature than the reality. So I didn't talk in school until third grade. That might have something to do with this, but I had such a sense from so early on that I can't even, I don't even know if it's like a cause and effect thing or if it was happening before I ever went to school and didn't talk. Um, so there was a really like the, the big formative moment of me not talking, even though I went to preschool, um, I went to preschool the year before kindergarten and I didn't talk there either, but apparently it wasn't too bothersome. But when I got to kindergarten the next year, the very first day I was sitting, you know, cross-legged on the ground with everybody. I think I was in the first row in front of the teacher and the teacher, Mrs. Kavanaugh or Miss Kavanaugh. I don't remember if she was, you know, a Mrs. or not. She instructed us all to like, you know, turn to the people around us and, and all like talk to each other and, you know, greet and greet each other and make a lot of noise and, and conversation. And I just like, something in me froze up. I was like, oh, I'm being like called on to do this. And like, not even specifically, but even just as one of a sea of like probably 30 kids or something. And so I turned around and like kind of looked like looked between two people who were kind of behind me and um didn't say anything i turned around so i could turn my face away from the teacher so she couldn't see that i wasn't talking that my mouth wasn't moving that i wasn't like like i wasn't doing her assignment essentially the, her our very first assignment on like my first day of real school right and i was so i felt so relieved whenever she she said like okay now you know stop and turn back you know i was so relieved then i just turned you know i turned back front ways and and then she went down the line of of each kid and asked them like what they had said during the the time we were all supposed to be talking everyone shared what they had said so when she got to me she was like oh okay what did you talk about and i just sat there it was like i mean that was that was an accurate answer i that was what i had talked about i had said nothing so i said nothing again and she was like oh you know a quiet type uh some people have used the term like strong silent type for me which is very weird especially to apply to like a six-year-old child but <laughs> then i just continued not talking even though i had not talked the year before in preschool there's something about that moment at the beginning of kindergarten just having that experience and like feeling that was my first real assignment in real school and like disobeying by being quiet by kind of like doing what a teacher would prefer you to do which is not to make a fucking noise right it i just feel like it was like a tiny little like snowball that kept rolling down the hill you know with each each like each moment of the first day of kindergarten and then each day and then each week and then each month and year until like the middle of third grade when the student teacher like helped like lead me out of the silence by like just I'm amazed that this didn't happen until third grade that someone was just like oh just whisper it in my ear because um, I had at that point in third grade by that point I had 
been not talking the, my entire life in school. You know, as I got older, and by older I mean like seven, eight, nine, like <laughs> like not that old, like going to first grade and then second grade and third grade, just like the first day of every year, just looking out the window of the bus as I went home on the first day and just like being fucking sad and being like, oh, I didn't talk again today. And then, you know, then thinking, oh, maybe, maybe I'll do it tomorrow. And then thinking on the second day of each year, oh, I didn't talk again today. And then making it to the end of the first week of school, being like, oh, I didn't talk again this week. And, you know, doing the same thing for years. It was like an emotional anxiety snowball. It's like the longer you stay silent, the more weight there is on your voice. On whatever you say is going to carry. It's not just going to be the words you say. It's not just going to be you answering a math problem. It's going to be like a big moment then. Because because the moment hasn't come before. Because you made it important by withholding it from people. It added so much weight to the idea of like voice and speech and talk and um, and words in my life. And words have always been important because I, you know, from very early on believed, you know, believed I was a writer. And so I wrote, I wrote a lot of shit. Written words were my pathway of communication and I felt much more comfortable with them. Uh, when I discovered the word shy, it was like a fucking gem, even though it was honestly not what was describing me. But I just found out that shy meant, you know, if someone was described as shy, that it meant a lot of times they were quiet, um, maybe not silent, but quieter. And so when I discovered the word shy and my first grade teacher, Miss Evans, asked me, you know, why I didn't talk, I wrote on like a little piece of paper, I'm shy. I'm just like, it's like five letters, two words. So simple. It's so like plain and it's not true at all. It's a fucking excuse because I couldn't tell her. I couldn't tell her why. I didn't know why, you know, I didn't know why I wasn't talking, why I couldn't talk. And, um, you know, I actually have this problem still. It's not. Um, it's not this kind of selective mutism, but I feel like I physically can't talk when I get really upset, which uh, it makes a lot of sense to the point where I didn't even really connect it with just pure anxiety until like just now. Cause whenever, like whenever I'm having a difficult conversation with someone and I, I'm like, I'm not crying, but I could cry in the next like five minutes and I'm, I'm getting, you know really anxious. My throat, it just feels like my throat is closing up and it feels like I like almost physically cannot talk. It takes an, like an astonishing amount of effort for me to get a word from inside of me to the outside of me through my mouth. Uh, it just like, it's such a struggle. And the thing, when I learned about selective muteism classified as kind of like an anxiety thing, so connecting 
that childhood, like not talking to the point of feeling like I really couldn't, like I wasn't electing to anymore. I wasn't an elective mute anymore. I was like a selective mute. Um, cause my, my mother used to call me an elective mute because I was electing to do, to not talk. But like, honestly, that stopped being true. That stopped being true really quickly. I really felt like I couldn't. It just like, it was too much. It was too much weight. Um, it's too much pressure, especially the longer you go without talking to start talking. It's like making a, like an official, like debut of your voice in front of like, in front of your peers, you know, in front of like a big group of, uh, of kids your age, you know, where it was easier, you know, just like with my family or, you know, with the kids my age who knew me because they lived in my neighborhood, not usually gathered in a group of like 30 of those people. It's usually like five or six, maybe that was more of a comfort zone where school was new. And I was so excited about school as a pure thing and going to school and learning things and, and like, you know, writing in a notebook and keeping things really organized. Um, a kind of weird, like organization fetish that has never died, but also never come true. I've never been able to really be organized for more than like two days at a time at the beginning of a school year. So <laughs> it's good to remember that I've been wishing that was who I was, that I was like, you know, an organized girl who could be a paralegal one day since I was like five years old. I'm like, I, I'll never be a paralegal. <laughs> I'll never be that organized lady. Anyway, I think there was a point to me telling this story and I'm not even done yet, am I? So Miss Hoffman was the student teacher in third grade who finally got me to to talk in school, in class. And it is honestly amazing now when I think about it that like nobody before that was just like, oh, you could just whisper in my ear. You could take away the social pressure of like knowing that you haven't talked in class before any of these people, you know, ever before and just let you answer this math problem and say, oh, the answer to nine times nine is 81. Dadoy, I know this. Because all my teachers knew that I knew my shit, basically. <laughs> like, this is the benefit of having a lot of, like, written down homework and not a lot of spoken word. Um, you could just prove them, like, yeah, I know my stuff. I know what you're teaching me. I understand the, the information. Just no one else can know. No one can know. <laughs> no one can know. I know how to spell. <laughs> I remember the first time that Miss Hoffman said that I could, you know, give her the answer, just whisper it in her ear. Because I almost didn't. I like leaned into her hair. My throat felt like it might be closing up. And I was like, what if it doesn't happen now? I did kind of feel like it was out of my control. It, like these things went through my head like, oh, what if I just don't talk in a way where I, where I feel like I didn't have control? And then I thought, what if I just don't talk? You know, if I leaned in and just don't talk in like, an, oh, I might actually have control type of way. And I managed to whisper like I was like, you know, my mouth was next to her ear for like some moment until I actually managed to say anything and it was such a like such a nervous quiet whisper and I was so scared about anyone around me that they would hear in that moment my whisper my private private whisper of like I don't know 88 or whatever but I finally did whisper the answer 
in Miss Hoffman's ear. And she was like, you're right. Good. And she just went on afterward. I felt like, like, oh, like, I did it finally, like in some form. And then quickly she moved on and, you know, we continued the game, whatever game we were doing. And, you know, and then the next few rounds, she'd come come back to me and let me whisper in her ear more. And to be honest, I do not remember when the first time was that I spoke aloud in the classroom without whispering in one of the teacher's ears. Because I guess it was less important than that first moment of just breaking through, of going from not doing to doing, you know, of going from silence to speech. All this to say that, that it's actually something of a true triumph for me to be working on something like this, a show, a podcast that is reliant very much on my voice, on me speaking out loud, on me being able to be literally heard. Because silence is where I am comfortable in the worst way. I've said a lot over the years that I'm a good listener. It frees me from having to talk, you know. I can be part of a conversation without talking if I'm the listener. But I also just want so badly to be known and to be heard. I made it a big deal for me. Because I withheld it from myself for so long. For a long time, I had this fantasy that I uh, I could write myself down. I could write something so real and rich and pure that it actually communicated who I was, that you could actually get a really true sense of me, sense of the writer through the writing. I had the fantasy that I could do that and send it out into the world like a, like a stupid message in a bottle. (laughs) I like some really cliche, uh, you know, metaphors there and someone would find it and they'd read it and through reading it they would know me and not because they'd looked at me but because they'd read me that they would love me I really liked the idea of a stranger being able to know me through the things that I wrote through that form of my voice I remember growing up and my mom would always say things like, like, I'm your mother, I know you. And I was always so skeptical of it. I was like, what, how, why, why would that be true? And I mean, there are reasons that would be true, um, <laughs> for, for, for some people, but it was just like, no, like there's like, if I'm not telling you things about myself, 
Like, there's no reason you actually know me or know me well enough to say that you know me. I have a whole thing about this, about, like, knowing people well enough to think or say that I know them. Um, this comes out mainly in me, like, not feeling secure in calling somebody my friend. Because I'm like, are we really friends? We're not good enough friends or, you know, close enough as humans to be considered friends in my book. We're not, you know... But I was always very distrustful uh, and skeptical of my mom saying things like that, like that because she was my mother, she knew me. It rang really wrong, rang false to me because of the way she said it um, and not, oh, because I live with you. I'm like, I think that would have been a way to say it that would have made sense to me, but... Because she said, because I'm your mother, it made it seem like it was something about blood. It made it seem like it was something innate or biological, which I really, like, as someone who doesn't want kids and who has, like, such a weird relationship with the idea of uh, family in general and the concept of loving your family members... Um, I've always been so weird on that and so distrustful. I'm like, how can you say, I, this, I know this sounds, I know this sounds weird or bad, but I was always, even as a, a child, I was honestly like, how can you say you love your parents? How can you know what love is if you're like seven? Like, how can you say, I love you, mom? Like, how do you know you know what love is? How do you, how can you know? what love is and do you actually know your mother like do you know your mother well enough to say I love you mom because I never I don't know it's like I could never like imagine or accept the idea that you just I don't know it's like I, I always thought you have to know who a person is as a person can't just think oh they're my mom they take care of me they love me they feed me waffles I'm like I can't I don't know I was always so convinced and very hung up on and honestly still though right um <laughs> is there anything i'm not still kind of hung up on um this idea that like oh like in order for me to say that i love my mother it has to like i have to actually love my mother which means i have to know my mother more deeper as a person as a human being and not just what she shows me basically, and not just as her role as my mother, but I need to know her as a human being to be able to say that I love her. So I didn't tell my mother I loved her for a really long time, and the first time I think I told her, first time I remember telling my mother I loved her was at the um, kind of forced behest of my friend when I was, I was on my, f I was on Oh, yeah, this was in the age where it was, like, barely cell phone era, right? Um, and I was talking to my mother on my cell phone while I was in the car with my friend and her mother. And my friend, when my call was ending, was nearing its end, my friend was like, tell your mother I love you. You know, say I love you to your mother. And so I did because my friend was right beside me and she was annoying <laughs> about it. <laughs> And so I said that and it was just like, why did I do that? <laughs> it's like, that isn't true. I can't know that that's true. Why would I do that? Um, but yeah. Uh, oh yes. I think this was at the age of like 14. 
or I think she was 14, actually, my friend. So I guess I would have been 13. I really was very wary, just really wary, really skeptical and distrustful of this, this concept that was, that people talked about, about, uh, about familial love, which was unconditional love. And whenever I learned what, uh, how people described unconditional love to me, I was like, that sounds like the worst thing. That sounds horrible. That sounds like a thing that shouldn't be because it won't help. Cause I don't know. I don't know. It was like, that seems horrible. It seems like, oh, you just love this person no matter who they are. I feel like that was how it was explained to me. Where it's like, oh, I, I have unconditional love for you. I love you no matter what you do and no matter who you are. And I was like, you, like, if you love someone, no matter who they are, then you don't love them. You love their, their role or their position to you, you know, biologically or socially or something. You don't love them. And I was so... Honestly, like thinking about it now, I'm like, I kind of still feel this way. Honestly, I do have like a different concept of unconditional love as an adult, but I still super distrust it. And I like will not tell people if that's what I think I feel for someone is unconditional love. I'm like, oh, I can never say this to that person <laughs> because whatever they do, fuck it up one day. And it turns out that one, my love was not unconditional. And, <laughs> you know, what if they commit a terrible, terrible, unforgivable crime? <laughs> like, I don't, I don't really want to do that. I don't know. It's, it just seems so fraught. Um, and, and it's like the who you are doesn't matter. And that hurts so much because I'm like, that's all I want to know. That's, that's so much of what I care about. And it's, it's all I want to know about people is who you are on the inside. Tell me. That's why I have this podcast. I want people to tell me who they are and how they got there and getting those goddamn nooks and crannies. Every time I hear the phrase nooks and crannies or say it, I think of uh, uh, English muffins. <laughs> it's one of my favorite things just in the world. <laughs> So this was originally supposed to be a podcast episode about what I learned from doing this podcast. And it kind of like began as like the ultimate origin story of this podcast. Like going back to just me talking with my voice, parts, mouth, bits at all in my life in some sort of public forum. But I didn't actually talk about anything I learned from doing the podcast. So I'll try to do that. I wrote a couple of notes for myself. Let's see if I can get on track. I can get so off track. I can talk about unconditional love and not telling my mother I loved her and all these things and English muffins and <laughs> I'd never get to the point. Everything's connected. It's great. Um, so, okay. So I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, which is connected to like me being able to vocalize my thoughts and everything in something of a public forum is this idea of privacy and public and what's known or available for people to know about me and what's hidden or private or closed versus open. 
this has gotten kind of clear cut in a lot of recordings I've done because I've done most of them with my partner. What comes out whenever I re-listen to recordings that me and Reese have done is that clearly part of me just wants to have like a hangout morning radio DJ show with him. Um, (laughs) I just want to completely shoot the shit with him. But some things have come up in our recordings that are like about the very beginning of our relationship. And there is honestly a lot that I'm willing to talk about in regards to my personal relationships, uh, past and present. But there was specifically a story about literally like the day we met that I was going to include because it did kind of like lead up to something that we ended up discussing. There was a story we told that's kind of like our own personal like a pretend myth, like it's our favorite thing to reference about our earliest relationship um, as a way of like reflecting on our current relationship. I did go over that little like mini story of the first day we met, including our little like personal myth, but I ended up cutting it out because I realized like, oh, you know what? I actually do kind of just want to keep that between us. If anyone else is around, we can explain it to them. And they're not, they're never going to care as much as we are. They're never going to think it's like as cute or as dumb. Well, they might think it's as dumb as we think it is, but they're not going to be quite as charmed probably. Unless they like, like the particular animal that's involved. There's an animal involved, but that's, you know, I did want to, I did decide to actually keep that private, which was kind of, um, (laughs) Okay, this sounds like a dumb choice of words right now, but it was kind of radical for me to not share that because I really like to share a lot about my personal life. Um, I like that to be really open because, because I really like to talk about my life and have people know like what reference I'm making. Cause a lot of time I say something and I'm thinking of a certain thing in my head and people respond to just what I say because they don't know what I'm thinking, which is just a thing about being a human. But, <laughs> but I'm, but there's part of me that's like, Oh, I need to explain as much about my life as I possibly can. So people understand all the references I'm making at any given moment, because I don't necessarily tailor what I'm saying to um, the audience I'm addressing whenever I'm just talking to friends. Cause I honestly forget who knows what I, that's one of the reasons I like to tell everybody kind of everything is that I want it all to be, I just don't want to have to remember who knows what story and who I told this to and who I told that to whatever. Um, and it's not like lying. It's just literally, do you know this story from like October 23rd, 1999? I don't know. Um, (laughs) that I've told six people, including two people who kind of look like you or who ended up having profession like yours or whatever. And I can't remember if it was actually you or just somebody who shared some things that you have. Anyway, long story short, I decided to cut a story about how me and my partner met, um, out of the podcast. (laughs) The extreme TLDR, the TLDR doing this show has also forced me to confront the um this schism of like me desperately wanting to connect with people through negative experiences wanting to ask them these questions about shame and fear and all these things about the worst experiences of their lives and me being willing to share and talk about that and really wanting to hear it and really wanting to sit with people while they go over that 
but also like meeting like the fact that just a lot of people aren't comfortable sharing that so it's like wanting to connect to people and say oh this is how we're not necessarily the same but similar this is like ground that we both can share these experiences of shame or fear or guilt or anxiety etc but that's always limited to what people will tell you will want to tell you will be open with uh, will be willing to share with the internet because not everyone wants to be like i you know i'm not going to be super public but i'm willing to be like a, a real open book and there's that idea that's been in my life forever that it's like if you were really secure you wouldn't you know want to tell anybody anything or not you wouldn't want to tell anybody anything but you wouldn't feel like you had to tell anybody everybody everything um or anything you know you could just like you know like if you were really secure in your relationship you wouldn't tell you know people might not even know that you were with anybody and i'm like why because it seems annoying because i've had this experience where like someone talks in i words like an i language versus we language and i was trying to date them and so i didn't know that they were actually a we because they always spoke in i language and it was super fucking annoying <laughs> once i found out <laughs> it's like just just say we just make it obvious please come on i know you're still an individual but like be a little less secure and just say like just let people know what your actual life is please <laughs> Anyway, anything else I've learned about myself from doing this podcast? Probably tons. I did a bunch of re-listening this morning. I re-listened to, to all the parts where people actually talk about feeling like the worst person in the room. And it's been interesting to hear about, so far, the, the ways that people do feel like the worst person in the room. And that question, when do you feel like the worst person in the room, is set up to to make you think about you and your connection with other people right it's kind of inherently a comparison between you and other people because you are the worst and the answers maybe predictably have been often like how do my emotions impact other people like if i'm so happy that can hurt other people or in expressing my true like dullness of emotion I hurt other people or irritate them or being the least accomplished in the room. And my feeling like the worst person in the room is always feeling like I'm the worst at socializing, essentially, because I can't connect and that I feel like I'm often the only one in a room who can't connect. And even if I'm hanging out with someone else in a corner who doesn't seem to have connected with anyone else. The two of us usually can't either. I can't usually connect to the other, like, non-connector. It's like I have parts for a different system. It's just not compatible. I don't know. When I feel like the worst person in the room, it's when I can't connect, and it's because I feel useless. Like, I'm the most useless person in the room. I'm the person... Who might as well not be there. They're not contributing to the group emotionally or socially or verbally. So if I'm already not being useful within the group, serving a purpose, then 
I might as well not be there. I might as well just be absent if I already am like functionally absent within the group. There's a quote that I really relate to that goes, if you can't be a good example, you'll just have to be a horrible warding. And I'm honestly, I've kind of uh, embraced that, to be honest. It's why I, it's why I chose to call this show the worst person in the room. Um, and kind of like a re, like a personal in my own mind, reclaiming of that feeling or that term that I've used in my head. Or not necessarily being the worst person in the room, but feeling convinced that you are the worst person in the room, that I am the worst person in the room, that that is still a role to fulfill. And in having a role, at least I am not useless. I can be the warning. I can be the example of what not to do because, okay, the big like worst person in the room time of my life was a few years ago when I was part of this um, weekly class or meetup or whatever, I don't know, um, of other women in the Boston area. And, and most of them seemed to be doing like some work in nonprofits, doing something that was, you know, engaging them. They seemed more, yeah, like engaged as people in their own lives and through the, the things that they did every day. And I just felt so distanced from it. And I'm like, oh, I'm just doing this temp gig that's that's data entry and by myself. And I'm not connecting with anybody because I work at home by myself alone at a temp gig. I'm like, I don't even get good benefits. I pay out the eyes for crappy insurance at the time, you know. And when the other women spoke during our Tuesday night meetings, they sounded so like put together and articulate and well thought out. They used more academic language, which made me want to not use academic language. It made me want to, um, to throw a little more, a little spice in there of just kind of <laughs> casual, much more like raunchy language, just occasionally. Um, because of course I didn't actually speak up during the class very often. So, you know, I was kind of like using myself in my language choices as a really a spice. <laughs> and so I felt like the worst person in the room there because I felt like I was like, I hadn't found my niche in the way that or niche <laughs> in the way that a lot of the other women seemed to have found that in, in their jobs or in whatever they were doing and how they spoke, like they knew what they were talking about in a way that I feel like as soon as I start talking, I kind of lose track of myself as you can, you know, you can hear in this podcast, I just go off. I just wander off in different directions. Um, I can't quite stick to a point. And I feel like by the time I've finished my sentence or my statement, I'm kind of unsure of what I've said or what I meant to say. And did I, you know, did I say it the way I meant to say it? Or what did I include everything I needed to include there? Like, am I just wandering off? And so my statements are like incomplete and not confident. And they're like, this is my, you know, everything's couched in this is my experience, which is 
fine. Um, but surrounded by like a room full of people who seem so, so fucking on it, you know, it's, it's like, I just feel like I'm off of it. (laughs) So I kind of like let myself lean into that role that I started feeling after a few weeks when everyone else seemed to like talk to people comfortably. Whereas I like really just didn't connect with anybody and it took me much longer to get just socially comfortable to like talk to people during the break in the middle or afterwards. It takes me so long to warm up socially to people. So like you have a class that's only like 10 weeks or something and other people seem to start talking to each other in the first two weeks and I'm like I'm not ready to start talking until like five weeks in or something and I'm like I've lost a lot of time of like making those social bonds and it just takes me back to elementary school when I started talking finally and then was like ready to start making friends around me in like fourth grade um and then I just felt like oh everyone's already made friends and it's not like I couldn't possibly make friends but just everyone else has bonds that are already formed and so why would they need me why would they need someone else and why would they need me specifically who's been around them for years and never said anything because I didn't talk in school for you know ages yeah (laughs) yeah I've got some problems (laughs) clearly I think I'll end here because like that's actually like the origin of my thinking of myself as the worst person in the room. But I think that's enough for today. Um, Show business. If you actually want to subscribe to this podcast where I occasionally do this, um, (laughs) you can subscribe to the worst person in the room podcast through Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or really anywhere else you can find us. But those are the two biggies. And the show's social media is at worst person pod on both uh, Facebook and Twitter. And I'm not sure when I'm going to put an episode up again for this show. I'm going to take a break for a bit, I think. I'm going to be focusing on other things and kind of rethinking my approach to this podcast. So thanks for listening. I'm Teresa Francesca, your host. And this has been The Worst Person in the Room. (laughs) ¶¶